Well, Lord, we pray this morning for all the cares that, that we brought into the room with us. For everyone who has entrusted themselves to our prayers, we lift them up right now. Lord, for those who are sick, we pray for healing. For those who are suffering, we pray for comfort. For those who are in their last days, we pray for peace. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters who work this morning, who need to work, and we pray that as they work, you would make yourself known to them, be present to them. Thank you for them and how they serve and work for our collective good. And Lord, now as we open your word together, please inspire our hearts by your spirit. Take these words and do your good work in us, a work that is all yours to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, you could open with me to James chapter 5. We're going to read our passage shortly, starting in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, we have them in the corners of the rooms in the front and in the back. If you don't own a Bible that's readable, please take one of these with you. We want you to have access to God's Word during the week as you do your life. Before we read, starting in verse 7 this morning, this passage requires a bit of context because we had to skip a section. I don't know if you remember last week, Pastor Day had to skip some parts. So I want to just briefly set it up so that we can hear what is going on as we read it. So at the beginning of chapter 5, if you just skim, skim it briefly here, you can see that James is rebuking wealthy landowners, wealthy people who had preyed upon poor people around them. They fraudulently withheld wages from them, and they lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And actually, their materialistic lifestyle got so extreme that it says in James that even some of these poor people died because of it. They were oppressed people. James warns these rich. He says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Better yet, the Lord of angel armies. The Lord of angel armies has heard their cry and he understands their situation. So what we read today is James turning from this rebuke to those who were taking advantage of people who were powerless, to those then who had been taken advantage of, who had been oppressed, pressed down. That's what we get to read here and starting at verse 7. This section this morning is powerful, but I have to warn you, it's not light material. Like everything that we've read in James, this is material that is meant for real life, life that isn't sugar-coated, life that is real. And as we read this morning, we're going to see that this is an extended meditation on what it looks like to live with injustice, to live with suffering, and to live with pain. What does a faithful response for an apprentice of Jesus look like in the midst of those kinds of circumstances? That's what James is going to outline for us. And as we read, I'd like you to look for something. As James writes this morning, he alerts us, he warns us, of things that people who are suffering are tempted to believe about God and about themselves and about the world. So as we read, look for those things. What are they tempted to think? What are they tempted to believe? What are they prone to think about God? Let's read starting in verse 7, James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The first temptation that James anticipates that they'll be prone to is to believe that deliverance and that time of deliverance will never come. It's not going to come. They experience delay. They've already prayed. And this delay in deliverance, they begin to believe, means that things are not going according to plan. And we better take things into our own hands. We better respond to this oppression and this suffering with our own actions that may not be God-glorifying. James addresses that temptation by calling them to patience, to waiting, and to a life that actively anticipates the return of their king, the coming of their king Jesus. God is, he has heard their cries to him. He is not deaf to them, and now they must act and trust. They must engage in the trusting act of patience. Rather than responding to those wealthy, rich people with an uprising of violence, which you would have understood, given that their, their own were dying now, they're called to actively be patient, to wait for the Lord. But this waiting, this patient life, is not one of passivity. It's not one of weakness. No, it's of deep meaningful friendship with the Lord who is compassionate and who is merciful. It's not a display of weakness or powerlessness, but of steadfastness in the face of adversity and suffering. As we dig into these details today, as we go verse by verse, remember this big picture with me. The call to follow Jesus as his apprentice is a call to radical heart transformation into his likeness. It's a call to full and genuine human living in the midst of our joys and importantly for them and for us in the midst of our sorrows and our challenges. Patience and waiting. Has there ever been an age, you think, that needs to learn more about patience and waiting than our age? I mean, in our everyday lives, we have conveniences that those who came before us, like the people who received this letter, could not have even fathomed, right? Maybe that we couldn't have fathomed even a few years ago. We can use our voices. Like right now, if I use the right pattern of speech, I could make all of your phones do something, right? We can use our voices to talk with machines to make them send messages or to set alarms or to turn on lights or to make a vacuum which is autonomous, clean our floors. Or we're low on toilet paper and we can have it order some with our voice and it magically shows up at our doorsteps. Pretty amazing. 
But conveniences like those have eliminated or greatly reduced our need to practice patience in our everyday life. It can feel like it's unnatural in some way to be required to wait. Like when we have to wait, something has gone wrong, which is telling, isn't it? We have been conditioned to live with the assumption, or better than some presumption, that we should not need to wait, and that to need to wait is wrong. Getting something faster is always better than having to wait, or maybe not. Humorously, I remember a time before cell phones when the place that we lived, the post office, was getting a lot of complaints about how long it would take to go into the post office to buy postage or mail something. So this was on the radio, this big problem about the wait times at the post office. And uh, one of their solutions to this problem was to remove all of the clocks from the room. (laughs) Right? So if you can't tell how long it's taking, maybe it's not quite as bad. And uh, I think that was pretty funny, right? It's humorous. But there is something to that, I think. There is something to that logic. Can't we all remember a time when things felt like they just slowed down completely because we were waiting for something that we really wanted? Like a child up in the middle of the night, Christmas Eve night maybe, anticipating presents in the morning, just staring at the clock that just looks like it's frozen at quarter after two or something in the morning. Mom and dad definitely hear about that frozen time. In those moments of a seemingly frozen clock, it can feel like the thing that we are waiting for is never going to arrive. And that feeling, like the thing we are waiting for is never going to arrive, is something like what the people James was writing to would have been experiencing. They must have wondered, will we ever be delivered from this suffering? How long will we need to endure this? We've cried out to God, does he hear us? All of those questions would have been understandable, right? Given their challenging circumstances, they would have been prone to believe all sorts of things about God that wouldn't have necessarily been true as they waited. They would have been likely candidates to fall into the temptation to look at their life and interpret their circumstance And then to think that God is like this certain way because of my circumstance here. It's a temptation that all of us can fall into, especially when life is not going the way that we want it to. This whole section of James's letter is meant to be a practical comfort and a redirection for our minds as we suffer. It's meant to enable us to align our thinking with the way God thinks, to align our feelings with the way that God really is, and to gain God's perspective on our life, which is the perspective that really matters. God is not aloof. He is not unaware or uninterested in our lives. He is intimately connected with us when we endure pain. He does not stand far off comes right in next to us and goes through the suffering with us. The deliverance that we long for is coming. We are not frozen in time. 
I want to give you a dictionary definition of patience this morning, since that is our focus. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Impatience, then, is just the opposite. It's to get angry, irritated, upset at delay, trouble, or suffering. This is an important idea throughout the scriptures. James is not alone in the New Testament in highlighting it as something that is central for followers of Jesus. Paul did so in two passages that may be familiar to you. I want to read them this morning because they're somewhat famous passages from our New Testament. The first one's Galatians chapter 5. This is in the fruit of the Spirit that Paul listed. Listen to this. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then in the famous chapter about the way of love, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's the first quality of love that he lists. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. From both of those passages, we can see that patience comes from God. It has his, his source in him and his good work in our hearts. It's the fruit. It's the byproduct of his spirit dwelling within us. And it flows out of the person who God's love is within. We don't make God's love come within us by being patient. His love is within us so we're able to be patient. That order is very important as we talk about it this morning. God's love within us produces patience. Let's look again. I want to go through these verses, verse by verse, from James and get out of it as much as we can of what James has for us. So let's look again at James 5, 7. It's a key verse in this passage, and it's the one that James will unpack and then illustrate with story and example throughout the rest of this passage. It starts, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The sort of patience that James was calling these people to, remember, it wasn't just general everyday patience. It was patience in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a pressurized situation of poverty and persecution. And patience amid suffering like that, or our own suffering, that's the hardest kind of patience to have, isn't it? How is it possible for a human being to be in that circumstance and not grow impatient and not grow wearied by the weight of it? The key for them and for us is what James focuses on in the, in the second part of that sentence. He says, the coming of the Lord future hope. Future hope. That is what is key here. Patience is needed until the coming of the Lord. A person. They were waiting for a person who had heard their cry and would intervene on their behalf. A person, not a thing, not a circumstance, but a person. They were called to trust him. And we are called to trust him as we walk through life and the difficult times in our life. Always looking to him. He is who we are waiting for. The word coming there 
it's translated as coming, it literally means presence. So it could say, until the presence of the Lord. It was used in secular Greek writing to mean arrival. So like the arrival of a king or a dignitary. So when the Lord arrives, be patient until the time when the Lord arrives. When he arrives, he will do so as, as two things, as judge and as savior. He will once and for all set all things right. Everything will be taken care of. Oppressors will be dealt with and his oppressed people will be delivered from their situation. And this reality, this promise that he is coming and that is certain was meant to fortify their hearts, to help them be patient amid a circumstance that was miserable. More on that in a minute. James continues in verse 7 with an illustration of the sort of patience that he has in mind. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. So the, the type of patience that James is calling them and us to is the patience like a farmer who is waiting for a harvest. Think about that. The farmer is waiting for a harvest, seeds to grow, which he has no power over. He's powerless to make anything grow, and it says that he's waiting for rains, the spring and autumn rains. He's also powerless over whether or not those rains come, right? But he waits. He anticipates that something good is coming, the harvest, but it's not going to come until the time is right. The farmer is powerless to speed up time, to cause things to grow more rapidly. Instead, he waits patiently, trusting that in time there will be a harvest. It is certain. But think about the kind of patience that farmer has. The farmer is far from inactive. He is not passive as he waits. Think about all the work that goes into the farmer's waiting. There's the preparation of the soil, there's sowing, and then there's ongoing care of that which he planted. So the farmer in that way is actively patient. It's not just patient on accident, but very actively waiting, active in the process. And they too were called, the people James was writing to, to be actively patient as they anticipated the coming and arrival of Christ. James then, in the next verse, verse 8, repeats himself for emphasis, and then he unpacks a little more about what he's getting at. What sort of patience does he mean? Look at verse 8. He says, You also be, a pa- be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. That means strengthen your hearts. Get your hearts ready. Prepare your hearts. Have your hearts be expectant, anticipating. That is how we, like the farmer, can practice active patience. The farmer plows and sows. That's his work. We intentionally take steps to strengthen our hearts. We intentionally take steps to establish our hearts. That means that as we wait for the Lord, we live in a way that we expect to encounter circumstances that are going to require patience. Those circumstances are just normal, and we need to be expecting them. We fill our minds and our hearts with the truth of God's word and who God is in our life. 
We meditate on God's faithfulness to his people and his faithfulness to us in our lives. We call those things to mind and we look for every possible way that we can see God's mercy in our life so that our hearts can be strengthened and full of thankfulness. All of that is our active part in being patient with him. But all of this is possible, just like the harvest is only possible because God calls growth, our patience is only possible because of God's work. We are dependent upon him, yet we are called to take steps, active steps to strengthen and fortify our hearts. It is in his strength that we are strengthened. He meets us and he works good in our hearts, strength in our hearts. And we are active. We don't just sit back and say, God, give me patience. We step into it, allowing him to strengthen our hearts and positioning ourselves to meet his grace as we struggle against sin and circumstances that are outside of our control. Circumstances that feel like they just press in on us that we haven't chosen for ourselves. We need strong hearts, established hearts, to walk through that in faithfulness. James says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, the focus for James, for us, is a person. A person whose coming is a sure thing. And now with that sentence, he's emphasizing the imminence of Jesus' return. The arrival of the king is not far off. It is certain and could happen at any time. Vindication is right around the corner. What he means by that is that everything else that God was going to do in salvation history, in his plan of salvation, had been accomplished. He had entered the world as a human being. He had lived as the image of God, the perfect image of God on earth, which is what human beings were meant to be. He went and died on the cross, was resurrected from the grave after three days, and then he ascended into heaven. He brought forgiveness and reconciliation and new hearts to us. Everything that needed to be done before the return of, of the king has been accomplished by God. So his return is imminent. And it was important for those James was writing to to understand that and to be anticipating that so that they would not lose heart. He's coming back and it could happen at any time. He will set the world right, and it's just right around the corner when he's going to do that. It's meant to strengthen them, and it's meant to strengthen us, so that as we wait, as we cry out for deliverance, and as we wait, we don't give up hoping. We don't lose track of what God is doing in the world, all that he has already accomplished, all of those things I just walked through that he's accomplished in Jesus, give us confidence that what he will still do is going to come to pass. Just like we're confident that our sins were forgiven on the cross, we are confident that his return is imminent. Next, James anticipates that suffering people may be tempted to think that they are justified in responding to sin with more sin. That's something we're prone to when we're experiencing pain. Responding to the pain, responding to the suffering by inflicting more suffering. Look at verse 9. 
He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is standing at the door. He's right there, right on the other side of the door, ready to return. And this time, James' warning is not for those wealthy people who are oppressing them, but for the oppressed, that they might not take their situation and how horrible it felt as an opportunity to grumble at each other, to bite and gnaw at each other. Again and again, we saw saw through this letter that our speech, what comes out of our mouths to each other, is really, really important. James emphasizes that over and over again in this letter, and even more so here in the middle of a situation that was painful. What we say to each other matters. It matters even when we are suffering, even when we're in the middle of pain or anxiety or sadness. Because isn't that the time that we are most prone to start grumbling and to feel like it's not that big of a deal? We can even begin to feel like maybe our unkind words are justified because of the thing that we are going through, because of our suffering and our circumstance. But our unkind words are never okay. I think this is especially difficult for us when our suffering is obviously being caused by someone else's sin. When the situation that we are in is being caused by someone else being disobedient to God, we can feel like I can vent. I need to let this out. I need to get back at them by talking in a certain way, by using my words as a weapon. And James is making it very clear, do not fall into that temptation. Even in that moment of desperate weakness, our words matter. Even amidst their poverty and persecution and that pressure, it mattered. They were called to remain faithful to Christ their King, no matter their circumstance. Their sin of others was not a license to speak however they wanted. I want to just briefly skip to verse 12. You may have noticed that right at the end of what we read, James sort of transitions back to talking about oaths. And scholars have trouble understanding where does this oath-making fall in the flow of his thinking? I think the best understanding of it is that it's attached again to speech and to the importance of speech. People then would have taken voluntary oaths in order to bolster their word. I swear to you I'll do this by this other thing. And some people would use that as a way of manipulating people, as a way of holding power over them in some way. And James is saying, for the follower of Jesus, we have no need to take an oath by anyone else's word because we have no need to mislead anyone with our words. Our yes can be a straightforward yes. Our no can be a straightforward no. We don't have to manage other people. It's calling us to watch out for that. And you may remember when we walked through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus did the same thing with almost exactly the same words that James used here. Oath-taking isn't needed for us. And so he makes it clear that's a pattern of speech that is not part of the kingdom of God. We do not have to manipulate things even when things are tough, even when things are hard. Quick review. So far, James has anticipated that suffering people are prone to temptations to believe that the time of deliverance will never come, like time is frozen. And suffering people have the tendency and temptation to feel justified 
at using words and actions as weapons when they are suffering. Now, he will help us with another major temptation that suffering people face. It's the temptation to believe that we are the only ones who suffer, that we are unique, that our lot is one of suffering, but other people don't need to suffer the way we do. Other people around us have it easy. To help them and to help us through that common temptation, that common tendency, he gave them two examples to consider of suffering and patience. First, he gave them the prophets, and then he gave them Job. The prophets, just really briefly, were those who, in obedience to God, spoke on God's behalf. And every time, without fail, they did that in the Old Testament, they faced suffering. They faced the backlash of God's people and God's enemies around them. And really, none of them ever got to experience the full deliverance that God had promised. Some of the prophets got a taste of it, but none of them got it in its entirety. I want to read from Hebrews because it's a New Testament example of what people like James was writing to would have believed about the prophets. This is Hebrews chapter 11. It's speaking about God's faithful people and the prophets. It says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. And of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." The prophets experienced horrible suffering as they remained faithful to God. And they got only tastes of what deliverance would be, what deliverance would finally become. So the people that James was writing to were not alone in their suffering. And we are not alone in our suffering. It is not abnormal. It is not irregular. Others have gone before us who have suffered and they have lived faithfully with Christ through it. They practiced active patience and waited for the Lord's delivery. We live in a world that is beautiful. It's full of joy and life. And at the very same time, it's full of brokenness, it's full of decay, and it's full of death. Those are the tensions that we live with in this world. It is very, very good but it's broken. And because of that, suffering is inevitable in this life. Our response to those trials in our life matters. It matters, just like their response mattered. God is glorified as we trust him through the most difficult times. Finally, we come to the last temptation that James addressed. And I think this temptation that suffering people are prone to is the most dangerous of them all. It's the temptation to assume that God is someone whom he is not, or that God acts towards us in ways that he does not. This is how it can go, just briefly. I experience suffering, 
So I cry out to God for deliverance from that suffering. God, deliver me. Deliverance from the suffering does not come as quickly as I want it to. So then I conclude from that experience these things about who God is and how God acts towards me. And James is clearly aware of that tendency of all of us to do that, to take our experience and our interpretation of our experience and then overlay that and make God fit that circumstance. And that's why he calls to mind Job. We don't have time this morning to fully get into Job's story. It's a beautiful one. It's a difficult one. I encourage you to read it in our Old Testament. The thing that James wants us to see through Job's story more than anything else is something that's really important about God. That God is compassionate and God is merciful. As we read Job, that is what James wants us to think about. God is compassionate and God is merciful, even in the midst of losing everything the way that Job did. That truth, God is compassionate and God is merciful, is absolutely foundational for us. It is the only safe place for us to build our lives upon. God is compassionate and merciful. We are meant to take that truth and then start there about who God truly is and let that truth interpret our circumstance. Let that truth that God is compassionate and merciful tell us what is happening over here in our lives rather than the other way around starting with what's going on in our lives and interpreting it as God is something other than compassionate or that God is something other than merciful. The word compassion is such a rich word. It comes from a Latin word which means to suffer with. Compassion means to suffer with. It means that God enters into our suffering with us. He feels it alongside of us. It affects him. When we are in pain, God feels that. And he is merciful towards us. He continually moves towards our needs with his provision, towards our poverty with his riches. He's overflowing with mercy all the time. Church, we develop patience as we learn from God more of who he is. We are then able to see straight through our circumstances into the deeper realities that are going on underneath the activity in our lives because things may appear vastly different in our lives than the way they actually are in God's secret purposes that we don't know, that he hasn't revealed to us. Evaluating our circumstances and moving from our circumstances and our interpretation of our circumstances to who God is is fraught with danger. It is fraught with challenges. We might conclude things like, God doesn't love me. We might conclude things like, God must be punishing me still for something I did years ago. Or even, God must not hear my prayers because I have asked him and I still have this thing. I have cried out to him, but I'm still in this circumstance. The truth is, God is always compassionate. He is always merciful. Those conclusions, that he doesn't hear me, he doesn't love me, this is because of some past thing I did. He's still extracting punishment upon me. Those thoughts are not a reflection of the image of God. They are a reflection of ourselves and of our own thinking. 
and they're dangerous because they do not strengthen our heart. In fact, they discourage, they steal strength from our heart and make it really challenging to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of difficulty. We must be careful, church. We are not God. Our perspective is limited and it's time-bound. And we take one of our highest goals to be our pleasure and our comfort. But God has such richer purposes for our life, such deeper things that he made us for than our pleasure or our comfort. Think about who we are before God. We're made of the dust of the earth, right? He made us from dust. But we're not just this physical flesh, right? He made us from dust, he formed us, and then he breathed his life into us. He gave us capacity to have friendship with him, to have relationship with him. Earlier in James, James was talking about Abraham and the relationship Abraham had with God, and he called him a friend of God. That is what we were made for, friendship with the triune God. One Christian thinker put it this way, I have this written on my board in my office and I read it every day. It says, you are an unceasing spiritual being. You are an unceasing spiritual being created for an intimate and transforming friendship with the creative community that is the Trinity. You are an unceasing spiritual being created for an intimate and transforming friendship with the creative community that is the Trinity. That is always going to be God's deep purpose in each one of our lives, helping us grow in that friendship, that transformative, life-changing friendship. So suffering, while not good ever in itself, suffering is not good, it can be the pathway to that purpose. It can be the pathway for us to a deeper, more intimate friendship with God than we could have imagined. As our hearts are strengthened in him and we depend upon him. Remember, all of what James is writing here was meant to strengthen people whose suffering had gotten to the point of people actually dying around them because of it. Being so pressed down that their life was cut short. It was meant to establish their hearts so that they could take captive their thoughts and see the narratives that they were building about who God was, how he was never going to arrive, how he was slow of hearing, how it's okay to bite and devour each other in the midst of this. It is God himself who is our refuge. It is God himself who is our hope in the midst of our hardest times. He hears our suffering. He cares deeply about it because he is the compassionate and merciful one. And all of our life needs to be interpreted through that truth. He is our compassionate and merciful king. I want to end by reading the conclusion of the passage that I read earlier from Hebrews about the prophets and their suffering. I think this is an amazing example of what James is intending for us to hear this morning and how we are meant to be encouraged. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, remember those prophets who suffered, God's faithful people, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, you know that we are but dust. You know our perspective is limited. We are forgetful people. And in the middle of that, you're compassionate and you're merciful. Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning that our hearts would be strengthened by the truth of your imminent return, that deliverance is assured, and that we can be strengthened in friendship with you in the middle of the toughest things in our life. I pray for those in the room this morning who are going through those toughest moments right now. Lord, we want to heap our prayers up to you for your mercy, for your renewed hope in every heart this morning that needs it. Lord, would you stir by your spirit and do in us things that we cannot do for ourselves. Give us faith when we don't have faith, Lord. Give us confidence in you in each moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.